You're listening to The Leader's Table, a podcast by Leadership for Educational Equity. Hey, Taylor, and hello, everyone out there listening. Hi, everyone. Hello, Cindy. What have you got for us today? It's kind of an exciting find. Today's conversation is with Dr. John King, a longtime friend of Lee, and it is actually something from the 2018 archives that never made it into a full episode. Ooh, so it's vintage? Yes, and from what I've heard so far, it is kind of like a fine wine that has only gotten better and more relevant with age. Now you're talking my language. You'll hear that Dr. King is from Brooklyn, New York, and after some challenging experiences, he turned it all around and worked his way up to serve as the U.S. Secretary of Education until 2017. Oh, nice. Yep. And from there, he went on to lead an organization called the Education Trust, where he works for educational equity at the national and state level from his home in Maryland. Okay. Well, that sounds super important. Should we get to the interview? Let's do it. Pull up a seat, everyone. Here's Jason Lorenz at the Leaders Table with Dr. John King. Dr. King, thanks for joining the Leaders Table. Thanks for the opportunity. So to introduce you is to walk through a litany of important leadership roles from Secretary of Education for the United States, a state education commissioner for New York State, now the leader of a venerable advocacy organization fighting for equity and civil rights in education, and of course, educator. What's the most important thing that you're fighting for today? Well, you know, from from the time when I first started as a high school teacher, my focus has been on trying to expand opportunity for low-income students and students of color and to make education equity the center of how we think about the work of schools and education policy. So that's really driven my whole career, and that's what I wake up thinking about every day. You've taught uh, in really diverse places, so Puerto Rico, Massachusetts, warm, cold. Mm-hmm. What is it that those experiences have taught you about education, schools, teachers, and what's needed that the rest of, the, of America just doesn't quite get yet? Well, in many ways, I think we sort of all know that what school comes down to at the end of the day is great teaching, right? The relationship between teachers and students and the work in which they are engaged. If we get that right, that's what makes a good school. And whether I was teaching in San Juan or teaching in Boston, I was always thinking about how do I make social studies exciting, interesting, engaging, compelling for students, and how do I make sure they leave my class with the skills they need to be successful in college and careers and as citizens. That sort of centering quality instructional experiences is a priority I've tried to carry with me through my whole career. You know, as I was preparing for this interview, I thought about the number of experiences that are embodied in you from teaching. Your parents were educators. You're an educator your wife, kindergarten and first grade teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, So what is the most important lesson about teaching that you bring, uh, you've brought to making policy and now for advocating for better policies? Yeah. Yeah. In many ways it's urgency and a sense of clarity that teachers save lives. You know, both my parents were teachers and they spent their whole lives working for New York City public schools. But both my parents passed away when I was a kid. Uh, my mom and I was eight, my dad when I was 12. And in between, after my mom passed, when I lived with my dad, he was quite sick uh, with undiagnosed Alzheimer's. So home was this place that was scary and 
inconsistent, uh, and really hard. And then even after my dad passed, I moved around between schools and family members. Through all of that period, the thing that saved me, the reason I'm alive today, the reason I do the work that I do, is that I had a series of phenomenal New York City public school teachers who made school safe, supportive, interesting, a place where I could be a kid when I couldn't be a kid outside of school. And so clarity around that is part of what I try to bring to the work. So when I'm talking with business leaders or civil rights leaders in a community about why education is so important, yes, it's about economic development. Yes, it's about the long-term health and well-being of our democracy, but it is also about saving kids' lives. That there are kids who, if they don't get a good experience in school, their lives will get horribly off track. And, you know, that, that urgency drives when you develop leaders around you or when you, when you think about your own team here at the Education Trust, what do you think is important for them to take into their daily lives to make sure that they're effective in what they're doing and that they're connected to the kids that they are uh, fighting for? Yeah. Well, you know, I think it starts with clarity of mission, right? We are very clear at Trust that we are about closing opportunity and achievement gaps for low-income students and students of color. And so we're clear about that and we organize our time and our energy around that. How can we make an impact on that mission? We are a country that has always struggled to fulfill the promise of justice. But this administration confronts us with even more dire challenges every day. You know, you, you, whether it's you see uh, children ripped from their families at the border or you see the dismantling of civil rights enforcement, all that has an impact on us. You, know, you see another school shooting. You see another young person of color lose their lives in interaction with police unjustly. All of that has an impact on us. So that self-care then I think takes on even greater importance in this moment that we're in. Honestly, it's important for leaders to do a lot of listening, uh, listening to their team, listening to the community that they're trying to serve, um, listening to partners. Uh, we've got to be in conversation with business leaders, who care about having a well-prepared workforce. We've got to be in conversation with policymakers and elected officials who can impact budgets as well as policy and education. So uh, that listening skill, I think, is a key part of leadership that sometimes is under-attended to. People think, oh, the job of leadership is to be talking. Uh, but actually, I think a lot of the job of leadership is to, is to listen and try to mobilize the community um, to solve tough problems, and that requires everybody working together. Mm. When you were speaking to the to the Policy Leadership Academy at Lee, you said that you had a, a favorite movie that featured Jaime Escalante, mm-hmm. um, where uh, in Stand and Deliver, Jaime says, uh, who here can do more? Who among us can do any more? And Jaime says, I can. And he came in Saturdays to tutor in AP math and calculus to change kids' mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. How do you bring that sort of personal commitment to leadership and inspire it in others? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that scene, uh, part of the context is that the school's um, sort of accreditation is under review and the, and the principal is saying, throwing up his hands, saying, who among us could do more? And part of the power is having us gone to saying, I can, I can do more, even though he was already doing a ton, because he understood the stakes for his students, 
um, and because he had that sense of mission, right? And I, I think ultimately he also saw that those after-school tutoring hours, that time on Saturday, translated into kids' lives being changed. You know, so the thing to me, the thing that, that I try to use uh, as a place to draw personal inspiration, but also to get others to, to, to engage in this work, is to think about where schools have been the difference for people and what it's made possible. I had experience um, not long ago visiting a student who was one of my middle school students when I was a principal, who now is in the Massachusetts State Legislature. Right? This, you know, in my mind, she's still a sixth grader, but I went to visit her and she showed me her desk on the floor of the Massachusetts State Legislature. That's inspiring. That's what this is about. Right? That if we do civic education right, the future legislators are sitting in our classrooms. The future leaders are sitting in our classrooms. Right? It, it strikes me that as a leader, you are as kind, as humble, as direct and as honest as any that I've ever met. Oh my gosh, it's so nice. But it's, it just very much belies the titles in many ways. A U.S. Secretary of Education is automatically thrust into a political hot spot, just as, just as much or maybe less or more than your, than your role in New York State, and maybe less or more as your role leading a classroom. And I just, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how you keep that. Now as an executive director of a very large, uh, respected, old uh, mm -hmm. state mm -hmm. uh, organization that, that's synonymous with change, how do you keep that? A few things. I mean, one is I, spend, I try to spend a lot of time in schools with kids and with educators. So, you know, uh, I was just in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, talking to administrators and teachers in their opportunity zone schools. And, you know, I did, did a talk with, you know, hundreds of people, but then I really wanted to sit down and have small and more intimate conversations. So I sat down with a group of educators who are focused on how do they recruit a more diverse teacher population in Chattanooga. And then I sat down with the principals of the opportunity schools to hear about that, some of the challenges they're facing. And sat down with the mayor of Chattanooga and the leader of the opportunity zone to talk about the future of Chattanooga and connections between early learning and K-12. Right. So part of it is I think staying close to the people who are doing the work every day. I think sometimes policymakers and, and advocates can get disconnected from the folks doing the work every day. Um, Part of it is uh, my kids, who are 12 and 14, who, um, you know, keep one having perspective about what, it, what it's like to be a kid today. Uh, both my girls are, have gotten involved in activism at their schools around school violence. You know, uh, they see it as um, not just about being safe at school, but really communities being safe, and they... Um, both are interested in seeing country change our gun laws and do a lot more to keep our communities safe. So engaging with them around that is powerful. Um, I'd love for, to ask you to walk me through your day um, mm -hmm. from the, about the time that you wake up in the morning to about 11 a.m. So mm -hmm. about your what potentially is your time in the morning mm -hmm. to walking into the office to working through what's most important through yeah. your prime yeah. time. Yeah. Um, 
Well, like I said, my kids are 12 and 14, so often the morning is uh, sometimes a little frantic, making sure everybody gets out of the house on time and gets to school, and then we have a plan for whatever's happening after school, and who's getting picked up, and who's going where, and who has practice, and so forth. Um, you know, often my workday starts with calls on the way into the office, um, and usually the calls are either with internal members of our team to think about strategy of how we're going to advance a particular issue in a state or to talk about a new report that's coming out and how we're going to make sure that research actually influences policymakers or maybe a call with a partner in a state, a civil rights organization or a business leader to talk about the work that they're engaged in, what some of the challenges might be in their state. Um, you know, often when I come, come into the office, and many days I'm traveling, so many days I'm out you know, in communities, talking with educators, talking with uh, civil rights organizations, parent groups, and so forth. But if I'm in the office, it's often uh, meetings with our teams about the content of our work. So it may be that we, we just did a set of reports around college attainment, so thinking about how we help states focus not just on overall goals for college attainment, but focus specifically on African-American and Latino student completion of college, right? Because in many states, they'll never hit their statewide attainment goals unless they make very significant progress for African-American and Latino students. Sometimes it's um, having a conversation like this one with folks who are connected to educators or community leaders to make sure we're elevating the issues that we're working on. Um, some of the time, like everybody today, is spent on email or even Twitter, because uh, we are very clear that movement building means we've got to get our message out beyond the beltway, as people say in DC, right? It's got to, we got to reach more than just the folks who are in Washington as decision makers or in state capitals as decision makers. We've got to get to communities and we've got to get to educators and the media, social media is part of how we do that. Make sure that we're reaching a broad audience. Is it, are we at a place where the numbers alone no, no longer shock? And so we have to sh uh, tell stories with pictures or that in some way we have to create more opportunity for people to see inequities for it to be real? Just wondering how you think about breaking through the noise. Yes. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, part of our philosophy is that there's a lot that people don't know that maybe we who do policy work think, oh, well, everybody knows that. But actually, when you talk to folks in the community, they aren't aware. You know, so, for example, uh, one of the findings in the Civil Rights Data Collection that we have 1.6 million students who go to a school where there's a sworn law enforcement officer, but no school counselor. When people hear that, when I'm traveling around the country, there's gaps in the room. Right? People don't realize that there are schools where there's not even a counselor. Mm. And you think about the implications for socio-emotional learning, you think about the implications for post-secondary planning, if all your school has is a law enforcement officer and no counselor. So that's not something that's well understood. So I do think there's an important role that a trust plays, that advocates play in sort of helping people realize data that they may not be aware of. Um, at the same time, people remember stories. They remember individual people. They, they, you have to kind of, I think, 
share the data in the context of what this means for real people. And there's definitely a challenge sometimes, I think, especially for policymakers, especially people inside Washington, especially people who are pretty academic. We can think that the numbers are all you need and forget that you actually have to um, help people understand the narrative. I also think um, you have to be clear about what, so what can I go do, right? That particularly around these opportunity gaps, sometimes it can feel overwhelming and folks can sort of feel like, gosh, it's so bad. And so you have to be able also to say, well, let me tell you about this place that is solving it, right? So I described to you the college completion problem. City University of New York has a program called ASAP. It's a set of wraparound supports for community college students. It includes academic advising, counseling, just-in-time grants for financial emergencies, a metro card, a bunch of services. What they've shown is that students who get CUNY ASAP support graduate at twice the rate of students who don't get those supports. And so community colleges have a real challenge around the country around completion, but CUNY has figured out a way to dramatically improve outcomes. Georgia State has figured out how to use advising, quality advising, to change their graduation rates so that Georgia State has pretty much closed the gap in graduation for students based on race and income. It's really impressive work. And they, they call it intrusive advising, I call it nagging, but essentially, <laughs> right, your advisor will call you and say, hey, I see you registered for this class. This class actually won't help you complete your major, won't help you graduate on time. Have you thought about registering for this other class? Or hey, I saw you got a poor grade in the midterm in this course. What's your plan? Same thing you and I would do for our kids, right? What's your plan? Have you been to office hours? Have we talked to the professor? Have you gone to the writing center? What are you going to do? And let me help you. It's interesting that you bring up higher education. Um, it seems the education uh, policy community, the advocacy community, was very focused on K-12 for mm -hmm. the grand majority of time. Mm -hmm. It's the big public mm -hmm. institutions. But the numbers are pretty stark for people of color and, and poor people mm -hmm. and first-time goers mm -hmm. for uh, yeah. for uh, post-secondary as well. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what the the big items of the agenda are for making higher education equitable and what regular people can do about it? Mm -hmm. um, that's a few things. One is we have to make sure it's affordable, right? Pell Grants play a huge role in that. Pell Grants are the main kind of federal vehicle for getting aid to, to folks from low-income families to be able to go to college. We spend a lot of time advocating for greater investment in the Pell Grant program. Pell Grants today are at a 40-year low in terms of the portion of college that they cover. So one thing folks can do is they can make sure their congressperson is paying attention to Pell Grants and voting to put more money into Pell, right? Very, very simple, direct activism. And we have this tool called College Results Online where we compare schools to peer institutions, right? So the idea is, and we've done reports on African-American completion and Latino completion based on this data, where we, based on these data, where we say, look, here's another college, same size, same student demographics in terms of race and income, same entering SAT score. But hey, their graduation rate for African-American students is 30 points higher than yours. So it's not about who the students are. 
It's about what you're doing at the institution. And so part of, part of what people can do is they can ask their, the college where they went to. What percentage of your students are African-American? What percentage are Latino? What percentage are, are low income? And what do their completion rates look like? And how do their completion rates compare to affluent students or white students? Right? So everyone can go back to their own college if they went to college and be a voice as an alum in that in the, in the work in that college. What's the most important thing you know about leadership today or that you believe to be true that maybe wasn't so clear to you 10 or 15 or more years ago? Just something that's kind of crystallized for you that you've, you've brought to how you do your work. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think about this book uh, by Ron Heifetz called Leadership Without Easy Answers. And... Heifetz makes this really useful distinction between what he calls technical work and adaptive work. Essentially, what he says is technical work is where, you know, you go to the doctor, you say you've got, you know, the doctor diagnoses that you've got a particular condition, gives you a pill, you go, you take the pill, you get better, problem solved. But oftentimes, we look for technical solutions. We see uh, the work of leadership as technical work. It's a problem, you figure out the solution, tell folks the solution, done. He argues and said that real leadership is about adaptive work. It's about helping communities, as he says, bridge the gap between their, their reality and their aspirations. Right? And that's not about the leader solving it for people. That's about the leader kind of mobilizing the community, engaging the community. To, to adapt, to, to change in some way that will get them closer to their aspirations. We actually have solutions all over the country to almost every problem we have. You know, I sometimes say to folks that uh, there's no problem in public education that, isn't, that can't be solved by the, what's going well in public education, right? Somebody somewhere has solved almost every problem. So it's not that we don't, have a technical answer is that we have to build uh, the public will, the capacity to do those things at scale. And that's an adaptive problem. That's not a problem. What is your favorite failure? Um, favorite career or, or personal failure that has taught you more than most other things? Mm. Um, it's probably getting kicked out of high school. You know, like many kids who have experienced trauma, when I was a teenager, I was angry. Angry at my parents, angry at adults generally, angry at society, angry at the world, just angry. And I sort of enacted that anger by breaking the rules, ignoring the rules, ignoring adults, rebelling against adult authority. And I got kicked out of high school. And obviously, I folks my first secretary of education I've ever been kicked out of high school. But I hope I'm not the last. And part of what made the difference for me was that I had educators, including a school counselor, some family members and mentors, who even though I'd made big mistakes, still had hope, still had belief, still saw the possibility in me. They could have written me off and said, you know, here's an African-American, Latino male, family in crisis doesn't respect adult authority, made bad choices. What chances he had? They could have written me off. But instead, 
folks gave me a second chance, invested in me. And so I've always carried with me this notion that people need second chances and third chances and fourth chances, that we have to keep finding ways uh, to make it possible for people to be their best selves. That's really driven a lot of how I think about what public policy can be. You know, one of the things we worked on in the Obama administration was a project called Second Chance Pell to allow folks who are incarcerated to have access to Pell Grants to be able to pursue higher education while incarcerated. In the mid-90s, when Congress made a series of terrible decisions around policies of mass incarceration, one of the things it did was ban access to Pell Grants. So we created an experimental project, a pilot project, to allow 69 universities to use Pell Grants for folks who are incarcerated. And now we're working to persuade Congress to restore Pell access for all folks who are incarcerated because folks are coming back to the community. You know, the vast majority of people who are incarcerated will return to their community. And the question is, will they return with skills, with the capacity to succeed, or will they end up back in prison? And we know that it, participating in any educational program while incarcerated reduces recidivism by 43%, any educational program. So if we invest in folks, give them a second chance, that can be powerful. I learned that very much firsthand. People gave me a second chance, they invested in me, even though I made mistakes. And that allowed me to get my life on track and to contribute. Mm -hmm. This story resonates for me so much. I'm a, I often say on this podcast, I'm a survivor of New York City City's public education system. Um, I did drop out. I did get to college through the Higher Education Opportunity Program in New York. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and went on to law school. Mm -hmm. And we say, you know, if if ever there is an, a, an, a second chance that can give someone uh, a new life, it is a second chance at education. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So I really appreciate your perspective. I think mm -hmm. it shows where your your uh, humanity and your connection to real people come from because you've had real experiences yourself. Thanks for saying that. And thanks for, for sharing your experience. I mean, I, partly you and I have to talk about these experiences so that people know the difference that second chances can make. And, and part of what I try to remind people, it's not a story about me. It's a story about the people who gave me that second Right? And the difference between me and someone who is sitting in prison today, someone who's dead because of gun violence in the community, the difference is luck. Was I, was, I happened to have a set of people who gave me those supports, and if I hadn't, I wouldn't be here. I often say it's, it's luck and it's policy choice. Uh, that's, right, that's right. My last question for you. Um, somewhere in our, in our listener group it sits a young woman She's a teacher. Um, she's thinking, I want to be the sec U.S. Secretary of Education one day, or I want to be an executive director of a respected organization. I want to make change. What's your advice to her? Um, a few things. One is, I always think, you know, leadership opportunities come when you really work in every way possible to excel at whatever you're doing right now, right? So, um, you know, if you are getting ready for your fourth grade class for the new school year, like just make it as amazing as possible, right? That's, that's one thing you just always have to do. Two, um, look for mentors, look for people, uh, teacher leaders, school leaders, folks in the district, folks who are doing public policy work, folks at nonprofit, 
you'd be surprised. I'm sure you've had this experience. Um, people are very willing to talk to folks who reach out and say, you know, I just want to learn about your path, how you came to be doing what you're doing, what your advice is. You know, reach out to those folks, identify those mentors, um, try to try to find those examples, people who can help kind of show you path. Third is really to be systematic about learning about leadership. You know, I'm on the board of Teach Plus. Teach Plus sees its mission as helping teachers fully develop their leadership, right? By learning about public policy process, media, legislative process, legislative advocacy, right? Um, they try to help teachers develop that sort of policy influence um, muscle, if you will. Um, find those kinds of learning opportunities. Pursue national board certification. If you'll allow me one more question. Yeah. What advice would you give your, your own 21-year-old self, mm-hmm. knowing all you know about, about you and the, the, the path ahead of you? What would you tell yourself? That's a good question. Um, a, a couple things. One is, I think, you know, I, one of the reasons I talk about self-care with folks now is I don't know that I've always done good a job of that balance in life, right? I've had periods where I haven't been as healthy about eating or exercise or haven't been as healthy in, in terms of um, making time for all the relationships in my life. I, you know, I could tell myself something at a younger age would be to sort of be more disciplined about those sort of self-care and balance things in life. Um, Two is, um, I think, to see adversity, professional adversity, as a learning opportunity and as a natural part of professional life. I think, you know, especially if you're if you do well in school and you're a high achiever, you come into the professional world and you sort of like you want everything to go right. And you know, when I was a first year teacher. Like many first-year teachers, not everything went right. Um, so I think for, for me and, and I think for a lot of uh, folks early in their career, just understanding that there are going to be those hard moments, there are going to be those disappointments, and it's an opportunity to learn. I certainly see that now in retrospect, but I think at the time, I just I wanted it all to go perfect. Um, you know, when I first became a principal, I wanted it all to go perfectly. And, you know, not every day went perfectly. That's part of the process. Thank you for that. Thank you for your generosity of time, spirit. And thank you for the fight that, you, that you're making every day. You and, the, and your team at the Education Trust. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be in it together. And that was Dr. John King with Jason Lorenz at the Leaders Table. Wow, Cindy. What a great combo. I gotta say, I found what he said about getting kicked out of high school very unnerving, and how it was actually just luck that he was able to get straightened out again. And he didn't really take much credit for himself either. He talked a lot about being lucky to be given a second chance and only being able to achieve what he did because of the investment that other people made in him. And that's the basis of the work he does for students creating programs that invest in school counselors, and creating supports that invest in students to help keep them on track. He also dropped a bunch of books and movies that I need to add to my list and Netflix cues. Yeah, those will be in the show notes for the episode. 
So if you want those titles or more info on Dr. King or even a transcript of the interview, check out educationalequity.org slash leaders table. Definitely going to have to do that for myself. Taylor, time for a break? Yeah, I think so. All right, everyone listening out there, please stick around after the break so that we can hear from you about the awesome things that you as Lee members are doing in your own communities. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. I'm Atira Griffin, and I'm here to talk to you about Lee's virtual course called Exploring Your Leadership with Lee. Exploring Your Leadership with Lee is designed exclusively for Lee members like you to help you reflect on the unique needs of your community and figure out how your own leadership abilities could best be used. This course takes anywhere from three to six hours to complete, and it's totally self-guided and self-paced. You'll walk away with a clearer vision of equity and a deeper understanding of the pathways through which leaders can support their communities and make an impact. If you're a Lee member and the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee course piques your interest, please log in at educationalequity.org. Click the virtual content link on the right of your member homepage, and then select the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee course to begin. This course is for all Lee members with all levels of experience. It's totally free, and best of all, it is designed to fit into your busy life. Once again, log in at educationalequity.org and click virtual content on the right to find the Exploring Your Leadership with Lee link. We look forward to helping you discover the next steps in your leadership journey. Hey everyone, thanks so much for sticking around with us. This Members in Action report starts with a major success story from one of Lee's member-led organizing alliances, Baltimoreans for Educational Equity, or B for short. In the spring of 2020, B was able to secure funding for more than 15,000 computers and devices for Baltimore students to use at home during the pandemic. But now, B has started working on another ambitious plan that would help students all across the country. We talked with Lee member Natasha Escobar, who chairs B and is working with a powerful group of young leaders to lead this effort. So the students who are leading this campaign are students from an organization uh, named SOMOS, which in Spanish stands for We Are, but the acronym means Students Organizing a Multicultural and Open Society. After the success of getting 15,000 computers to students, the group quickly realized that the issue of internet speeds was making working from home very difficult. Kids would complain about their internet lagging so they couldn't understand me or when they would try to respond they would get really frustrated because we would be like, what are you trying to say? They would get kicked out of class uh, if more than one person is using the internet in their household. And with these frustrations in mind, the organizers of B and Somos realized that what they were dealing with extended much further than Baltimore city limits. And we ended up growing over the summer into a national coalition that includes Philly, Baton Rouge, Detroit, Baltimore. Um, And so we've been working around trying to advocate to the FCC to increase the minimum broadband speeds because right now those speeds are insufficient to support using platforms like Zoom or Google Meet or Schoology or Google Classrooms um, when students are learning uh, virtually right now. B, Somos, and other organizations have been working together to hold digital forums, collect signatures online, talk with officials, and really let the voices of the students be heard. They are so confident and so steadfast in their demands, and they are like, 
simultaneously doing online school at a really rigorous school while also making meetings and holding press conferences and going to hearings. Um, it's incredible. With success at arm's reach, the groups are continuing discussions with community leaders and the FCC to do what they can to increase data speeds for low-income families across the United States. They hope to at least see some tangible results from their efforts by the end of October. However, Natasha is already seeing big changes in her students that have made all the late nights and Zoom calls worth it. So for me, self-actualization and students finding their voice, a sense of self, defining who they are for the world is like my ultimate goal. But I think when students become advocates and think about the world at large, it's going beyond the goals that I have for them. So seeing students do this kind of work, like literally warms my heart and it gives me so much hope and it makes me feel really excited to continue to do this work with my kids. Once again, that was Lean member Natasha Escobar from Baltimoreans for Educational Equity. If you want to find out more about organizing alliances in your area, please check out this episode's show notes at educationalequity.org slash leaders table. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the episode, think about sharing it with a friend or colleague or just leaving us a review. You can be alerted of new episodes by subscribing on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also write to us at leaderstable at educationalequity.org. Our show is hosted by Jason Lorenz, Taylor Stewart, and myself, Cindy Centeno. The episode is edited by Nolan Peters and produced by Graham Forden. I'm Cindy, and thanks for pulling up a seat at the Leaders Table. Be well, stay safe, and until next time. <laughs>